Please take your Bibles uh, once again and turn uh, again to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. Uh, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. By way of reminder, we are for our 25th anniversary, we are going through what are known as the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, These are five uh, Latin slogans. The word sola means alone. Uh, These are five Latin slogans that highlight uh, some of the important teaching that came out of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. So far, we've looked at Scripture alone and grace alone. Now, normally, when you, when you see the five solas listed, and it's this way on our bulletin cover, uh, the third sola is sola fide, or faith alone, and the fourth sola is solus Christus, which is Christ alone. But I'm going to flip-flop those in the next couple of weeks, and Uh, The reason I'm going to do that, the reason we're going to look at solus Christus first is because in order to understand true faith, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday, we must first understand the only proper object of our faith. You see, faith itself doesn't save us. I I could have all the faith in the world, children, that this bottle of water is going to save me from my sins. But that's foolish. We know that that wouldn't work. And so it's not faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. And so we must, first of all, understand that the proper and only object of our faith, which is Jesus, before we understand what true faith is. So this morning, Christ alone. Next Sunday morning, faith alone. And we're going to look at Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Last Sunday morning, I I said to you that if if we could travel back in time, if we could get in a... um, spaceship or something, some time travel device, and travel back to the 1500s, what we would find when we got there to the early 1500s is we would find that the church had fallen into some very serious theological error. Let's imagine that we could once again travel back in time, once again get in that ship and we go back to the early 1500s and we start asking people in the church Who 
is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Now, what we would discover in the early 1500s is that there wasn't really any dispute in the church about who Jesus is, at least within the church. Uh, Belief about the person of Christ was very orthodox. And so when the Reformation came along, the issue as it pertains to Christ was not really the person of Christ. Both Rome and the Reformers affirmed that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Both Rome and the Reformers affirmed what the Nicene Creed tells us about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Both sides confess that. Rome and the Reformers both said amen to that. That was not the issue. The issue, however, was the work of Christ. And and really, the question that was at the center of the debate between Rome and the Reformers was, is Jesus Christ a sufficient Savior? Do you have in Christ all that you need for your salvation? Or do you need something more? Do you need Christ plus your works? Do you need Christ plus the saints? Do you need Christ plus the elaborate sacramental system of Rome? That was the issue. Is Jesus the only perfect and sufficient Savior? Now, I think you would understand that that's a pretty important question, right? Your eternity hangs on the answer to that question. Solus Christus brings us back to the biblical teaching that Christ is the one, the only, the perfect, the sufficient Savior. You see, the church is not your Savior. The saints are not your Savior. Your good works are not your Savior. The sacraments are not your Savior. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is your Savior. That's the importance of that word alone. Rome would not say alone. Rome would say, Jesus is great. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is important. You must believe in Jesus. But they would not say Jesus Christ alone. To help us to understand this critical doctrine I want us to look at this very familiar, kind of memorable Old Testament passage, and there are three parts to it. First of all, there is the complaint, and then there is the chastisement, and then there is the cure. The complaint, the chastisement, and the cure. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Numbers, um, you might remember that, that earlier in Numbers, back in chapter 13, 12 spies were sent out to check out the promised land. But when the spies came back, you remember that 10 of the 12 spies said, there's no way we can do this. There's no way we can take the promised land. The people there are too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful for us. 
Only two of those 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, trusted that God would give them the promised land. The other 10 said, there's no way we can do it. Now, the result of their lack of faith is that that God told them that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And of that generation of Israelites, only Joshua and Caleb would be allowed to enter into the promised land. And so as we come to our passage this morning, that 40-year period is almost over. The 40-year wandering is almost over. The people of Israel have just defeated the Canaanites, and now they leave Mount Hor and they head south. Now, something you have to understand about this region, this territory, it was not the most beautiful place on earth. Some of you have been to to very beautiful places before, whether it's uh, castles in Europe or mountains or Hawaii, or you've been to beautiful places. This was not one of those. This was harsh, ugly, desert territory. In fact, early in the 20th century, Lawrence of Arabia wrote this when he traveled to this area. He said, this is a place of hopelessness and sadness, deeper than all the open desert we ever crossed. There was something sinister, something actively evil in this snake-devoted land full of salt water and barren palms and bushes which neither serve for grazing nor for firewood. That's where Israel is right now. Not not the kind of place you'd want to go for your honeymoon. Not the kind of place you'd want to go on vacation. This was not a beautiful area. And so now, as, as Israel makes their journey, we're told that the people start to become impatient. We know what it's like to become impatient. We're standing in the store, at the, the line at the grocery store, it's taking forever. We're sitting in the restaurant, it seems like our food is taking forever to get out to us. When that happens, of course, our natural reaction is to start complaining, start grumbling. Our natural reaction is not to say, Lord, thank you for teaching me patience through this. Thank you for this sanctifying process of making me wait. We don't do that. We complain. We grumble. And that's what Israel does. They they complain against God. They complain against Moses. Notice what they say in verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. And we hate this miserable food. Now this is somewhat humorous. First of all, they say there's no food. And then they say we hate this lousy food. I mean, which one is it? That's what sin does to us. Sin makes us do and say irrational things. But notice what they're doing. They're they're calling into question God's plan for them. Children, why why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? You you know that, that Israel, they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. It was a horrible, horrible time. Why did God bring his people out of that bondage? Did he bring them out to kill them? Did he bring them out to to make their lives miserable? No, he brought them out of Egypt so that they might worship him, so that he might bring them into the promised land that he had promised to give them. But instead of rejoicing what God had done for them, instead of saying, God, thank you, we are no longer in Egypt, Thank you that you have delivered us. Thank you for where you're sending us. Thank you for how you've provided for us. Thank you for this freedom. 
Instead of saying that, they're saying, God, this is a lousy plan. You brought us out here to kill us. Now, this isn't the first time that Israel has done this. They, they complained back in chapter 14. They complained again in chapter 16. They complained again in chapter 20. And they're complaining again here. This was a generation that was characterized by a critical, grumbling, complaining spirit. Now, we might read a passage like this and we might say, interesting story. I really like the part about the, the fiery snakes. But this happened, you know, over 3,000 years ago. I, I, don't, I don't really experience this. I'm not wandering in a desert. I'm not, you know, wondering why the Lord's not giving me filet mignon or double-doubles. I've got food. I'm good. I'm not complaining. But again, think about this. Are we really all that different from Old Testament Israel? I'm not just talking about the, the slow line at the grocery store or the slow service in the restaurant. Have you ever complained about what God is doing in your life? Have you ever questioned God's plan for your life? Have you ever said to God, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? You have ever thought to yourself, God, why, why is this happening? This isn't a good plan for my life. I think, in fact, you have a pretty lousy plan for my life. I hate this lousy job. I hate this lousy house. I hate everything that I have to deal with. Why are you doing this to me? But the point is, is that regardless of our age, regardless of our experience, there are times in our lives, probably more often than we care to admit, that we have questioned God's plan. We've grumbled against him. Now certainly, there's, there's nothing wrong with coming to God with our honest questions. If you read the Psalms, you see that over and over again. God's people coming to him with their honest questions. Why do the nations rage, Psalm 2? How long, O Lord, Psalm 6? Where does my help come from, Psalm 121? Those are honest questions. Nothing wrong with that. We, we should never act as if, you know, if you're a Christian, you'll never question God. That's not the case. You read the Psalms and you read that there are honest questions, but not all questions are questions, right? It's like when your wife says to you, are you going to wear that? That's not a question. Not all questions are questions. And there are times when we disguise our complaint to God in, a form, in the form of a question, when what we are really doing is, is doubting God's faithfulness and doubting his love and, and doubting God's love, doubting his plan for us, doubting his faithfulness, that's a sin. And Israel is guilty here of sin. And when we complain, when we question God's love and we question his faithfulness, we are sinning against him. And what does our sin deserve? What does grumbling and complaining deserve? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. Sin, 
Your sin, my sin, Israel's sin, deserves the judgment of God. And that's what we see here. We see the chastisement in verse 6. It says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Did you notice that God is the one who did this? God sent these snakes. Children, can you imagine how many snakes there must have been? Estimates are that there were probably hundreds of thousands of Israelites at this point. Maybe even over a million Israelites. Imagine how many snakes there must have been. These snakes are described as as fiery. That doesn't mean that they were literally on fire, but that's probably a reference to their color. You see, there's a, a snake in that region that's known as Burton's Carpet Viper. And Burton's Carpet Viper is a, a very prevalent snake in that area, and it has a reddish color. And Burton's Carpet Viper is not some harmless garden snake that you wouldn't be afraid to pick up. Burton's Carpet Viper is incredibly deadly. Apparently, this particular kind of snake kills more people than any other snake in the world. And so as a chastisement for their sin, as a punishment for their sin, God send these snakes, and, and the snakes bite the people, and a number of the people die. And this is a picture, really, of, of, of the judgment that will come upon all people on the last day who have not believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that day will, will be far, far worse than any snake bite that you can receive in this life. When you read about these these temporal, earthly judgments that God sends upon people, those are just a preview. Those are just a shadow of the final judgment that is to come. I don't know that that any of you are are big snake fans. I'm not. I I don't like to to look at them. I don't like to really be around them. I, I certainly wouldn't want to be in the vicinity of a Burton's carpet viper. But as much as we might be afraid of snakes, how much more should fallen man be afraid of the final judgment? How much more should fallen man fear standing before God on that day and trying to tell God how good he has been and all the good works that he has done and all of his attempts to get to heaven on his own? How much we should fear that day if we are not in Christ. See, this is a passage in a sense that that levels all of us. It, It reveals the sin in all of our hearts. It reveals that I too am a grumbler. I too am a complainer. I too have questioned God's purposes. I too deserve the judgment of God. At this point, God opens the eyes of his people to see their sin come to Moses in verse 7 they say we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us so they come to Moses he's the mediator between God and the people and they confess their sin and they say please Moses go to the Lord and and ask him to take these snakes away from us and that brings us to the cure God provides a way of escape doesn't he God graciously, mercifully 
provides a way for his people to be delivered from judgment. He says to Moses, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, if they will look to the bronze serpent, they will live. Now why would, why would God tell Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole? Very simply because this was a reminder that God had defeated the enemy of his people. You see, in that day, um, armies would carry poles. And on those poles, they would often display the flag of the enemy that they had just defeated. It was a sign that they had conquered their opponent. And, And the serpent on the pole was a sign that God had defeated the enemy of his people. And that's exactly what happened. Moses makes the serpent. He puts it on a pole. Any person who was bitten by a snake, if they will look to that bronze serpent on a pole, that person would live. God provides the way of escape. God provides the cure. Now you read this passage, you hear what I've said so far, and you might say, well, what is this? What does this have to do with Solus Christus? It doesn't even mention Jesus in this passage. We have to understand what the bronze serpent is teaching us. We have to understand what, what lies behind this story. And what lies behind this story, what is at the very heart of this story, is a very important truth, and that is that only God's appointed Savior can deliver his people from judgment. You know, God doesn't say, well, the bronze serpent is one option. If you want to, if you want to try my option, that's great, but, but there are other options too. If, if you don't like my option, feel free to try something else. God doesn't say that. Now, our culture says that to us today. Our culture says to us that there are many roads that lead to heaven. There are many paths to God. What's important is that you are sincere God never says that. God doesn't say, Moses, just tell the people to be sincere. Let them them find their own way to be cured from these deadly snake bites. God says, no, there's only one way. There's only one who can deliver the people from these deadly snake bites, and that is in looking to the bronze serpent on the pole. When we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus makes a wonderful connection between himself and the bronze serpent, what happened here in Numbers 21. So take your Bibles, if you have them, and go to John chapter 3 for just a moment. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is that... um, The context is Jesus is talking with this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader of the Jewish people. And and Nicodemus cannot um, grasp Jesus' teaching when he says you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. At a certain point in their conversation, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he has come to provide eternal life. So look at John 3, verse 14. Jesus says... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See what Jesus is telling Nicodemus? He's saying, Nicodemus, 
You know the Old Testament. You're a religious leader. You know the stories of the Old Testament. Nicodemus, you know what happened in Numbers 21. You know that God's people, when they were bitten by a serpent, if they looked to the bronze serpent, they would live. Nicodemus, it's the same way. If you want to live, if you want to have eternal life, you must look at me. You must look to me. Children, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And there on the cross, he took the judgment for our sin. And there on the cross, he defeated sin. He defeated death. And now all who look to him, who place their faith in him, who trust in him, will live. There is only one Savior, and we must look to him. This morning, we were privileged to celebrate Harrison's baptism. It's a wonderful blessing for Dave and Kelsey, a wonderful blessing for the family, a wonderful blessing for our church family. Baptism is a, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Baptism reminds us that just as water washes dirt from the body, so it is the blood of Jesus that washes away all of our sin. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel, but here's what we must never forget. I'm going to tie this in with Solus Christus. God's remedy for sin is not applied to everyone automatically. In Numbers, if the people were to live, they must look to the bronze serpent. If we are to have eternal life with God, we must look to Jesus Christ. That's true for Harrison. That is what Dave and Kelsey will teach Harrison as he grows up in their home. You must look, Harrison, you must look to Jesus. You must believe in him. You must place your faith in him. And that's true for every one of us in this room. We must look to Jesus if we are to live. We must embrace him if we are to live. He is our only hope. And so we've come full circle. We've come all the way back to where this sermon began, the doctrine of solus Christus. Jesus is the only remedy for our sin. Now, all the other voices in our culture today will tell us differently. But the Bible says, God says to us, there is only one solution. There's only one who can give us life. There are many religions who say nice things about Jesus. There are many religions who will tell you, Jesus is important. Jesus is an important part of getting to heaven. They will not use the word alone. They will not say Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Almost 500 years ago, in one of his sermons, Martin Luther said this, the devil does not intend to allow this testimony that Christ is the only Savior. He devotes all his energy to opposing it, and he will not stop 
until he has struck it down and suppressed it. Luther was right. The devil will do everything that he can to move you away from this message. The devil will do everything he can to move Zion away from this message. He will do everything he can to stop us from preaching Christ alone. He will do everything he can to stop us from preaching that Christ is the only hope for sinners. He will do everything he can to get us to dial back to think, oh, we don't want to give people too much gospel. He will do everything in his power to dissuade us from this message. But here's the thing we must remember. John tells us in the book of 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is the one who empowers us for service than Satan and the instruments he uses to stop gospel preaching. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so the devil can fight all he wants. But as Martin Luther also said so many years ago in his wonderful hymn, we don't fear him because he will not stop the preaching of the gospel. This is the message we proclaim. This is the message that is our only hope. Jesus is the only Savior for sinners. Jesus is the only one who will deliver us and who will give us eternal life. And I ask you this morning, are you trusting him? Are you trusting him as your Savior? Jesus is all we have for salvation. And he is all that we will ever need. Rest in him. Rejoice that he is the perfect and sufficient Savior. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this um, memorable Old Testament story that so wonderfully reminds us that we must look only to the one you have provided to save us. Pray again, Lord, for each person in this room, each person watching on live stream, that they would look to Christ and to Christ alone. Give us the strength we need that we might continue to proclaim this good news in a very dark, troubled, and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name.